have loved it. And I've had a couple of you come to me and say they really, really enjoyed the study and they didn't think that they would. But I think it's been really fun. And I chatted with Jim during the break last week and I think what I think we pretty much decided next semester, because we've liked this so much, that we'll do great chapters of the New Testament. Does that sound good? Yeah, I don't know what those chapters will be. Can I not move? Okay. <laughs> you know what? If we have to just turn it off, we can do that. I mean, I'm flexible. Okay. Okay, Jonah, you spent some time observing him. This is a short book. And we, in fact, when we did the prophet study, if any of you all were in here, we did the whole book of Jonah. But I really like just honing in on one chapter. I thought it gave me a lot more time to kind of think about what was going on in this chapter versus the whole story of Jonah. And I had a much deeper understanding of what makes Jonah tick and what was really going on here and um, more depth of who God is because of this study, and I hope that you, you did as well. So Jonah, you, you looked at this little observation worksheet, and you spent some time observing it. What were some of the key words that stood out with you to you? Appointed, yes, we saw appointed. Who appointed? God appointed. What else? Angry, who's angry? Jonah's angry, exactly. Who's, who is key? The only two people key in here, Jonah and God, we're seeing a dialogue between these two. Did you see anything else? There was a phrase that came up a couple of times. Okay, do you do well? You do well to be angry? And there's another one. What does Jonah say? I think I heard somebody over here say it. it it'd be better to die than to live. He is so angry. And also that word exceedingly. He was exceedingly angry when, when the Ninevites relent, but then he's exceedingly glad when um, God has the plant grow over him to cover him from the shade. So he has some pretty intense emotions, Jonah does. But let's just unpack this. Why is Jonah, what displeased him so much? that he is exceedingly angry. Okay. Okay, did you hear her? Because God relented of destroying the Ninevites. What was Jonah's mission? He was to go to the Ninevites and say, if you do not repent in 40 days, judgment is coming. We know the story of Jonah. He doesn't want to go. And instead, he gets on a ship going the totally opposite direction, if you look at a map, away from Nineveh. He is not going to go. And the storm rises. Those sailors um, naturally question, okay, God is angry with someone on this ship. Who is he angry with? The lots are cast. It is Jonah. Jonah says, just throw me into the sea. It's better to die. Uh, but he doesn't die. God, uh, that phrase, God appoints. He who is the creator over all his creation appoints a great fish to swallow him. For three days he sits in the belly of that fish and gives him time to think about what God has asked him to do. God then appoints the fish to vomit him up 
and he does go to Nineveh. He does go throughout the city and preach God's um, impending judgment, and the Ninevites, the king of Nineveh, gets wind of this. He puts on sackcloth and ashes, and he issues a decree and calls for everyone to repent just so that perhaps God will relent and not bring this judgment upon them. And he is angry. It's like Gene said, I don't want God to show mercy to these people. I don't want them to do this. And it says in verse 2, he, he knows who God is. How does he describe God? He very clearly describes God in verse 2. What does he say about him? Yeah, he's gracious, he's merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. And you looked at some cross-references. I'm going to come back to this question three about why is he so angry, but I want us to kind of look for a minute at all these other verses you looked at in Psalms and in Joel. How do they continue to reinforce these, these characteristics of, of God? It just repeats it, doesn't it? He is slow to anger. It says over and over. Look in Psalm 86.5, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. And then in 15, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You know, it sounds like it's just saying the same thing over and over again, and it is because it's who God is. Sometimes you have to hear that repeatedly to let it sink in to let it sink in how slow he is to anger, how merciful he is, how gracious he is, how abounding and steadfast that has said that covenantal love that he has, and he is in covenant with his, with his creation, that covenantal love that he is pouring out. Um, look in, in Joel, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. What does it mean? He re- why, why is he so willing to relent over the disaster? Did you think about that? To relent, if, if, his pe- if people repent, why is he so willing? Because of his love? Yes? He doesn't want anybody to perish. No. Turn to Ezekiel 33.11. Jim shared this Sunday, and I, I'm sure I'd read it before, but it really stuck out at me probably because of um, this lesson. But in Ezekiel... Thirty-three, eleven. it says, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil um, ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? So he says, I don't have any pleasure. I don't have any pleasure in destroying the wicked. And he doesn't have any pleasure because think about who he is. Remember your creator. Remember Ecclesiastes? Remember your creator. He, he is the creator. This is his creation. He is morally bound because of who he is, that he is holy and righteous and just, to execute judgment. 
on, 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 on repentance. But he, is, he doesn't wish to do that. He, he would prefer that, that his creation and the people that bear his image would repent and turn back to him and that he could then withhold that judgment. Does that make sense? Y'all following me? So, so let's go back to that question three. Why is he so angry? Why is Jonah exceedingly angry? He hates Gentiles, okay, which the Ninevites are Gentiles. Mm-hmm. Okay, did you hear Tony? He thinks that God should confine his mercy just to Israel. Mm-hmm. Yes, other thoughts? You think he had an evil nature in his heart that he didn't realize? Okay, he's very, I mean, that would be a little bit of, he's a little bit nationalistic. It's about us, Israel, not them, but it's deep within. Okay, okay, yeah, Kim. Okay, so Kim says Jonah wants what Jonah wants. He thinks that these people should be destroyed. What does God know? What does God know? Okay, you, you've got a good import. I'm going to lead you a little further in that. Is that okay? What is Jonah? You're expressing Jonah's theology. And his theology also does encompass who he thinks God is. So think about this. Why is he so angry? Everything he knows to be true is being challenged. His whole world is being challenged. His theology of who God is is being challenged. Part, and th- think about that. Part of his challenge is you are the God of the Israelites. You pour your mercy out on us, not our enemy. Do you see? This, um, this is Jonah's thinking. What else is Jonah thinking? Does anybody know? The Ninevites are part of the Assyrian Empire. Does anybody know anything about the Assyrians? They were horribly cruel. They committed some of the vilest atrocities. When you read in the, in the newspapers and um, media what ISIS does, it may, they look tame. ISIS is tame compared to what the uh, Assyrians did. In fact, one commentary I had gave some historical information of the things that they did to the people they conquered. And I thought about reading it here, but I decided it was just too graphic. It was just too upsetting to read the things that they did. And this is their enemy. The Assyrians are Israel's enemy. So we need to, when we think about him being angry, we need to think about that as well. Other thoughts, why is he so angry? Why is it not fair? That's a good point. Because they were horrible people, and you know the people he knew, I guess, the quote unquote religious Jews who honored God and his people, but never did. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Lived a debauchery, lived hard, party hard, whatever you know, and mm-hmm. you thought it wasn't fair that they would be forgiven with all this kind of 
That is an excellent point. If you didn't hear Marilyn, she said he thinks it's not fair. You know, we are God's covenantal people who have sought to live, although really they haven't, because yeah. this is during the time of the prophets where God is sending the prophets, calling them to repent because judgment is coming on them. But, but, but in Jonah's theology and Jonah's thinking, we are, there is a remnant here that is faithfully living. And so part of my theology is I live faithfully and I receive God's mercy and judgment. And these people who have not get his judgment, they get their, their payday, right? Don't we think that way? Well, like the parable in the New Testament where the guy goes to work in the morning. Yes. It's not fair. Why should I live faithfully? Why should I live obediently if someone at the ninth hour is going to get the same reward as I did for having lived faithfully all this time? That doesn't fit with the way we think. It's not fitting with the way Jonah is thinking. Any other thoughts? Yes. He is trying to teach. He is trying to teach him compassion. Yeah, yeah, and we'll talk about that more in a minute when we get to those verses. Yeah, definitely. But if you, if you think about um, Jonah in his thinking, think about this too. This, gives us a, this gave me a little more compassion for Jonah because I think it's really easy to kind of dog on him. But we're talking he is called to go to their enemy knowing, he says, I knew, that's why I ran, because I knew you're a God who is slow to anger who is merciful and compassionate and will relent for the disaster, that if they repented, you would relent. How am I going to go back and tell these people? How am I going to go back to my people and tell them God didn't execute judgment on these people that are, are so evil, who do such horrible, horrible things? How am I going to face them? Better for me to just die. Do you, does that put a little different spin on it? why he would then just reach that point. It just, it just be better for me to not live and let me die than I, have to than I have to live with. I have to live with the fact that I was an agent to see the repentance of the people of the um, Ninevites who are the enemies of my people. And not only that, how true is their repentance? Can you hear him doubting? And, and history proves that out. It wasn't true. It wasn't true because the Assyrians don't stay that way. They do end up conquering, and they do end up continuing to do very evil things. They don't change in the long run at all. And Jonah, know, Jonah has his doubts about that. Questions, comments? Does that change your thinking about Jonah a little bit? Mm-hmm. This is interesting. I read this is this quote. I read this quote. Let me see if I can paraphrase it. That Jonah, he has, think about it, he has a great deal of confidence in who God is. Because he states this and he knows this is true about his grace and his mercy and his um, slow to anger, you know, his relenting um, of disaster, all of these things. But yet that is the thing he also objects to. Do you see the complexity of his faith? 
Does anybody else struggle with that? The complexity of, I appreciate the fact that he is compassionate and merciful and slow to anger to me, but my faith struggles with the fact that he might be to someone else that I see as an enemy or unworthy of deserving of that grace and mercy. Anybody want to admit to struggling with that? We say life's not fair. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she says that she questions sometimes, why me? It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. The justice doesn't seem to be coming to me, but to someone else that I view as evil and wicked. Mm-hmm. It's an age-old question. Why do the wicked, wicked prosper? Why do they prosper? It's in the Psalms everywhere. Psalm 73, the psalmist um, continues to expound. Why do the wicked prosper? Why does it seem they seem to get away with what they're doing? And in the heart of the, in the middle of that psalm, the psalmist says, but then I came into the sanctuary of God and I saw, I perceived their end. And when he came in into God's presence and gets a better view of God, how God is looking at everything, yes, it appears that they are, but in the long run, no, they will not. In the short term, Short term, maybe in the long term, maybe not. They will not. Not maybe not. They will not. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. In some ways, you can just, it's, I don't know that Jonah's thinking this intentionally, but it's almost like he has a problem with God's abundant grace. It's too abundant. It's just, it's just too pouring forth. So how does God respond to Jonah's prayer when he says, when Jonah says, he prayed to the Lord, oh Lord, better for me to die than to live. Please take my life. How does he, how does he respond to Jonah's anger? his exceeding anger and his request, just take my life. I don't want to deal with this. No, he doesn't answer the way Jonah wanted. But what do you see him doing with Jonah? What is he doing with Jonah? He's very gentle. I like what you said, Tony. He just kind of goes, is it, is it really benefiting anything for you to be this angry? Do you really have a right to be this angry? I don't see him knocking him upside the head. Do you? Or just rebuking him. Instead, he questions him, trying to get him to think about what he just said in relation to you know, who he is in, in what he just said. So... What does Jonah do, though? Jonah doesn't answer back. What does he do? He goes, he sits down east of the city, builds himself a little boo, and waits. I can just see him sitting there waiting. Maybe God will, maybe God will relent once more and rain down fire and brimstone on these evil people. I'm going to sit here and wait and see if he'll do it, right? 
And how did, what does God do for him in those appointments? You see all these little appointments that he does as he sits there pouting. He what? He has a plant grow. The plant comes up and shades him, and Jonah's glad, isn't he? He's glad. Jonah continues to sit there and, and as he waits. So the plant comes up and covers him. He's glad, but in verse 7, but when the dawn came up, God appointed what? A worm. Points a worm to attack the plant so that it withered. Withered, you know, very quickly. And then when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And then he asked that he might die. It is better for me to die than to live. And, and he says, but God said to Jonah, Do you do well? He asked him again, Do you do well to be angry with the plant? Really? You're angry about the plant. You're angry that that plant died. What is, what is God trying to get him to see? And he is, do you all see, do you see how kind God is being with him? I'm just going to ask you little questions to try to get you to see, really to mirror into your heart what is really there. Because I love you. I am slow to anger. I am gracious and merciful, and I love you, Jonah, and I really want you to see. Let's not worry about the Ninevites. Let's see what's in your heart, and let's deal with that. So he kindly questions him. You do well to be angry with the plant, to pity the plant enough to die. And what does he say? What is God trying to get him to see? In this whole exchange, in this whole object lesson of the plant, the vine coming up and covering him and then the worm attacking it and the plant dying. What, what does he want Jonah to understand? The key is repentance. Yeah, and I think you said it, you said it well. You know, I, I created this plan. But I also, is, is that kind of what you're saying? But I also created the Ninevites. So you, you want to have pity on this plant, but you won't have pity on these people, right? Other thoughts? What's he trying to get him to understand? I'm in charge, not you. Yeah. Because what it, what it, if you think about what is in his um, questioning of God, in his anger, he, he is not letting God be God, is he? Do you all see that? Jonah is not allowing God to be God. Who he, He's wanting God to be who he thinks God is, not who God is. Are you following me? 
Okay? Everybody's thinking. I can see it on your faces. Everybody's thinking. So June says he cannot see, he's selfish, the world is revolving around him, he cannot see that God would be merciful to other people, especially evil people, especially Gentiles. Okay? Other thoughts? Yes. Norma? So the caterpillar ate all the flowers. <laughs> yeah. The caterpillar ate the vine, not the worm, the plant. <laughs> Speaking to us through Jonah. Don't you think? I mean, he is. What, what does it say in the New Testament? These things were written and, and all these historical events recorded so that you might learn from them. Why, why does this book end with, with just kind of a, did you notice how it ends? But just with a question. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? And also much cattle. End.
He wants us to know him, exactly what you're saying. He wants us to know him. He wants to reveal himself to us so that we'll have a relationship with him. Why does it end, why does it end with a question? Did you think about that? I kind of gave you hints in the lesson. Why does it just end there? What does it make you do? We don't know if Jonah repented or not, do we? Israelites were a kingdom of priests, a light to the nations in the same way that we are now. When you read that verse in 1 Peter, it's a quote right out that's applied to us. It's a quote right out of the Old Testament. They were totally ignorant. They didn't even know what moral law was. These are evil, evil, evil people who have a culture and a society of violence and cruelty to other image bearers of God. But it's all, you think about uh, a lot of them there, it's all they know. It's what they grew up with, right? It's what they know, or it's their cause. Think about the people fighting for ISIS. I don't understand that. But they're very passionate about what they're doing to the point that they will kill people who do not agree with them. So just because you're, you're, not, you're not Muslim or they're brand a Muslim, um, where was I going with that? I just lost my thought. I hate it when that happens. So anyway, yeah, they, they, don't, they don't know. They're ignorant of it, and yet you have it. And, and the, there, there is that point, whoever just made it. They are a king and the priest. The covenant was with them. They are God's chosen people, but it wasn't meant just for them. It was meant that they would then just proclaim the excellencies of who God is, that as this nation, people would look and say, that is what living for a holy God is. That is what having a relationship with the one true Yahweh is. And it would be attractive, and people would want it, and more would come in. It wasn't just so that I only preserved these. Yes, this was his instrument and his tool, and it was an instrument and tool through whom he would eventually bring Jesus Christ through the nation of Israel, but was never meant to exclude anyone else. And we see that with Rahab, with Ruth, with many others. The Gentiles were always welcomed in to a relationship with God. They were always welcomed in. Does that make sense? Other thoughts? One interesting thing that the blessing of this entire book is God's love Yes. Did you hear her? That Warren Wiersbe, who's a commentator, says the message of the entire book is God's love, love and pity for lost souls. For lost souls. I think what God is wanting him to see is that, you know, I, I want you to have an extension, Jonah, of the concern that I have for people who don't know me who are my image bearers, who are part of my creation that I created and have tended and have caused to grow, and I don't wish to bring judgment on anybody. I wish that all would repent and be in relationship with me. And I wish that so much that I have made a way and a provision for anyone to believe and be in right relationship with me. Does that, do you see what I'm saying? Because what is he what were you going to say, Lynn? Did you want to say something? 
Yeah. That maybe he would care about the cattle. If you don't care about the people, at least care about the cattle. Maybe you would care about the dogs and the cats. I mean, for us, our modern day, and, and many cats and dogs, right? That would be, would that be the modern day equivalent? And all the household cats and dogs. Yeah, yeah, Catherine. If, if you weren't obedient, they would yeah. throw you overboard? Yeah, I mean, I was like, truly, there are fish in everybody's water. There's, there's a gobble up. You're so obedient. I can understand. So it makes you carry a very good girl on the boat. So that's first. Second of all, this kind of reminds me, and I think Jonah personally is my favorite one, because he's just so um, cantankerous, and God uses him. And it reminds me of... Um, the sermon series we did a while ago about, I think, like the prophets when they were talking about Samson and how Samson, like his final act was like, basically, God, help me get revenge on the Philistines. And I just always remember in the, in the sermon series, God's like, I can work with that. Like, I always remember that. And I can work with that. And then, like, he helped Samson, like, bring down, yeah, he helped Samson, like, bring down, you know, the house of, he's not even in charge of anything else, but brings down the house and things like that. Yeah. And so I just, That's a great, that's a great point. That is a great point. And you know what? Jonah also, um, um, oh, I'm not going to go there. But anyway, he's, he's very, he's just so interesting. God, God is so merciful to him, really, if you think about it. And if he hadn't gone, if he had t- still refused, God had sent somebody else. He didn't need to use him. But it is amazing. How, and Sam, I love the story of Sam. Samson's included in, in Hebrews 11, the great hall of faith. And you read the story about him. It's kind of hard to find what, was, what, what did he do. There's really not much redeeming about Samson. And yet he is listed that way as an example of someone who had great faith in God. He only does it at the last minute at the end of his life. Yeah. Lynn?
Well, I think that's easy to have more compassion on if you really sit down and you let this be a mirror to you. Would you really be excited about your, your worst enemy repenting and receiving God's mercy? No. He was a long ways away. Yes. So he was busy with his life. So his life was just completely interrupted. His life is interrupted. And he was told to go far away. Then he goes farther away, and then he has to go back. Mm-hmm. So it's not. Not it's only that. Like, hey, go to the city and talk to the people over there on Main Street, you know, because that's close. Not it's only that. Go to Mexico. Go to Mexico. Not only that. They could have killed him. I mean, when you put that into perspective, and you know the Assyrians, you can kind of understand why he got on the boat and fled. He might, I mean, he, there was a real, there was very much a risk that he was going to go, and the Ninevites would have just slaughtered him. His, his life was at stake. His life, his reputation among his own people, his whole theology is being turned upside down. I like what you said, Glenda, his whole life is being turned upside down. And he, he makes this risk, he does this, and then God just shows abundant grace and compassion on these people. But what is he failing? What is he forgetting? What is he not remembering? Look, look in, I'm on question nine. What is he failing to understand? Is that the one that got you normal? And if you study Romans and, what, and how Paul comes up to that point in Romans in chapter 1, you know, God has poured out his wrath on all unrighteousness, kind of speaking to the Gentiles, really to all of us. In chapter 2, he talks about the Jews. You think that you're observers of the law, but let me bring you to 3 and say there's none righteous, no, not one, nobody. No amount of observance of the law will make you righteous. Everybody is guilty. And what's even more amazing is right after that passage when it says, but now, but now God has poured out his righteousness in Jesus Christ because you can't save yourself. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. I'm stepping in and I am making the way. God himself. What is that phrase? I always quote it, the John Stott. God himself gave himself to save us from himself. And that's what he does. It is his pouring out of his abundant grace. And he, Jonah is forgetting that. We're forgetting that. We're forgetting that if we're unwilling to forgive. We're forgetting that if it bothers us, kind of makes me mad, and I'll be, I'll be the first to say, bothers me even more when it's a Christian who has deeply offended me, and yet they seem to be getting grace just poured out on them. Zap them, you know, rain down some consequences <laughs> in front of me. Do y'all, are y'all following me? But what am I, for, if I do that, what am I forgetting? I, I am worthy of nothing but death. And God was gracious and merciful to me. How can I not pour forth mercy to someone else? How can I not give what he gave to me? Yes, Norma. It's credited, it is, by faith, by faith. 
How was Abraham saved? By faith. Abraham believed God and God credited him as righteousness. Abraham came 430 years before the law. It was by faith. That is one of Paul's major points in Romans and in Galatians. Luke. In Luke, we have the parable of the prodigal son. I ask you to read it because there's some similarities there. How is Jonah like this elder brother? It's not fair. Why is it not fair? What was so unfair? Yeah. Yeah, did y'all hear Brenda? The older brother said it's not fair. I earned it. The younger brother didn't. He took your inheritance and just squandered it. Then he comes back and you throw a big party, but you didn't throw a party for me at all. Other thoughts as you compared those two? So what do you learn about God from this chapter? I ask you that every every week. I, I hope... I was having a conversation with someone last night, and I don't see her here this morning, about how much, I, how much to me the Old Testament really shows a depth and a multifacetedness of, of God's character. Um, and that's why I like studying it. But so what do you learn about God from, from the study of Jonah? He is always ready to forgive. He wants to forgive. He really doesn't want to execute judgment. What else? It's great. I mean, I love what you said. He's very kind and he's very, if I can paraphrase, kind in general to kind of question, not zap us, but question us and say, do you do well to be angry? You're upset about this person, but what about your own heart, your own actions, your own? Yeah, think about it. They're still in there? They came out in the hall. Where, I was like, oh, where did you get it? I've been sitting and thinking. <laughs> okay, well, now let's go talk. <laughs> or you put them in time out like I did with my son, and I don't remember how old he was, and then I forgot him and realized he's never come out. What's going on? And he found a pencil and drew hieroglyphics all over the dining room wall, which you have to get the kills out and then the paint. He was having a great time. He was just drawn. He found a pencil on the floor. He's in there just drawn away, having a good time. He, 
So my fault, me bad. But yes, he's just so kind and gentle. You know, he did that to me on Sunday. The sermon, something in the sermon that kind of resonated with me. And it's, and it's like I heard him say, you know, Nancy, is that what you're doing? Is that really right? You might want to think about that. I mean, it's like I could clearly hear his voice. You know, he took an application from it, an indirect application. He just said, you know, you've been doing that. Is that really right? Maybe you ought to rethink that. And the implication is, no, it's not right. And I know that, and I have to make some changes. But, yeah. Anything else you learned about God? Let me leave you with an interesting thought, and it was a particular commentator that helped me to see this. It's so obvious. It's like, why didn't I, why didn't I see that? And, you know, he says, um, talking about the um, Jonah going to these people, and the risk, really the risk, that they would repent, which is the risk that Jonah doesn't like, right? Jonah thinks God is not going to execute his judgment. But in the end, he, in either case, the Ninevites are overturned by God because if they repent and they stay repentant, their culture will change. And, and their culture of violence is overturned. If they repent and it is not long-lasting, or if they don't repent, their culture will be overturned because God will, in his timing, execute his judgment and take them out. Do you see that? Do you see that's the risk of the repentance? That's the risk of, of letting the enemy and the evil one repent that God will, over, he will still overturn them because he will change them. He will change them. And that's the thing we have to deal with in our hearts. Are we willing to let God be God and change them and not be our enemy anymore at all? Are we willing to let him be God? Are we comfortable with his ways or are we struggling with them? How well do we knowing that we are okay to say, I, God, I will let you be God, even if I don't agree with the way you're doing it. You are up here, I am here, and I will trust that what you're doing is right, and it is holy, and it is just. Because what you have done with me is equally holy, righteous, and just, but gracious and merciful and a pouring out of your love to me. How, how dare me not want that for somebody else, regardless of how evil they are, because they are still his image bearer and his creation. Does that make sense? Thought, comment? I'm ending five minutes early. We are in the book of Jonah, and we're looking at much of what Nancy already shared, and uh, a couple of times already I've kind of fallen into the, I think I've taught this recently, and in part because I think I preached this recently. And so what I want to do uh, in our time together is to, um, is to kind of look more theologically at what the book of Jonah, how it fits into its entire section known as the prophets, and uh, looking at what Israel needed to learn, and looking at what Jonah needed to learn, and looking at what the Ninevites needed to learn, and then the extrapolation in terms of application to us becomes what we needed to learn regarding this. 
And so I kind of had some, some fun with this, and maybe in part because I'm teaching, uh, Ryan's had me uh, teach a couple of uh, extra sections in the Trinity class. And so last night I was in the book of Revelation teaching on the triunity of God as found in Revelation. And uh, it, it just kind of rung home. Maybe it was kind of the connection of those that really kind of helped me understand kind of in a different way. I don't know if I've ever had this. What I'm going to share with you right now, I've, I've had this thought but I've never had it in this way. So I'm really grateful for my study through this, and uh, I'm really looking forward to talking to you this morning. If I were to say to you, God is, and you were to try to describe God, what would you say? God is what? God is love. God is? Just. God is? Forgiving. God is? Holy. God is? God is? God is? Unchanging. God is? Eternal. God is omnipresent, omnipotent, and so omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. I guess that would be the third one. He is all, he is everywhere, he is all knowing, and he is all powerful. So the omnis. What else is he? Sovereign. I-E, E-I, Genevieve? That, that's right? Okay, good. Righteous? Anybody want to just say something that's not on here? Faithful. Say it again. Yeah. Over here, though. Wrath. <laughs> oh, good, because if you're going to say scripture, I was going to say, then don't say it. <laughs> Yeah. 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 No, that's really interesting. Yeah, I know what you mean. Right? Yep. Yeah, it's kind of hard. It's kind of hard yeah. a word to say that. It's very interesting because my, one of my first thoughts when I think about this, this, and doing this, doing an exercise like this is really, really helpful. Um, there's an old Brian. Do you guys know the comedian Brian Regan? So he, he tells about these, these people who are uh, studying whales. And so these whales, you know, you know how they sound, right? They're studying whales, and it's like, aww. And then these people come in, and they just go, wow, he's lonely. 
because, you know, he sounds lonely, right? So you hear that. Aww. Like, doesn't that sound lonely? And Brian Regan's joke is, no, you're lonely, right? <laughs> you're sitting in a room listening to whale noises. I promise you, you're the lonely one. I have no idea if the whale is lonely, but I think you're just projecting, you know, that's what we call it, right? We, psych we project onto others what we want or what we long for. And so I've always found it to be very fascinating when I ask the question. Um, and and I, don't, I, don't, I don't even know if this is bad or good. I think it can be a healthy exercise. You know, uh, you, you, made, you commented, Tammy, that God, like, challenges us. He speaks to us. He kind of draws us out in, in this. He does this with Jonah. It's a good reminder. He does that. And it's a good reminder that when we begin to ask what God is like and we begin to answer what God is like, um, you do know he's more. I mean, when, when would we stop? Right? We could just keep going and talking, and some of them are even more complicated than that to, uh, to write down. And so it, this is a really complicated thing. And, and one of the exercises, and, and, and I want, the reason I want to see this, this isn't just a generic exercise. This is Jonah's story. Jonah has a picture of God that is a picture of God that he wants. And also one that he doesn't want, but it's kind of one, he's kind of mad at the fact that the God that he wants isn't the God that is. Right? So he knows that he's merciful, and he kind of doesn't like it. And so in the end, if you ask Jonah who he is, who God is, who Yahweh is, I, I think he would, if you, he, would, he would say merciful and compassionate near the end. That's the one he doesn't really like. That's the one that he really struggles with. That's the one that he has a problem with. And so when you describe God, what is God like? God judges idolaters. What is God like? He is the covenant God of Israel. What is God like? And he kind of begins with those ones, doesn't he? Which, are they true? Yes. And so I always find it fascinating when I say, what is God like? When we say things, it's like, this one I really like about him. Like, I just love that about him. And this one I really like about him because I really need it. And, and this one I really, really like about him. And, and this one, I really, really like about him. I mean, it's interesting. I can tell uh, a, a Rob Bell version of God. I know exactly what I'm going to get. And I, I, I know what a, what, a, what a John Hagee version of God is. Right? I know what an Andrea Johnson version of God is. And it's fun watching my boys. And, and I was this way. I mean, this was, this was me. And so the bad news is my boys have to be related to me. Um, so when I was little, the word that I would always use, I've told this story before, the word that I would always use just, just, to, be, um, just, just to be a bit of a, uh, what do you call it, like a, a contrarian. I wanted to say the one that nobody else wanted to know. Everybody else was loving and caring, and he's sweet, and he's like a bunny, and he's like a rabbit. And I was, you know, I was always the one, he's jealous for his namesake. That was my one I used to always say. Because it was so different than what everybody else was saying. That's kind of my personality a little bit. And so it's kind of interesting. But then that reveals something about me. It's not like this reveals something about Nancy and this doesn't reveal anything about me. No, this reveals something about me too. And I, I love that because what it, what it forces us to acknowledge is that God is more than you know he is. So just I want you to just think about that. Like, God is more than you know he is. And that is why I, I think it's so good for us. We, we, we throw this idea around, and I think too simply, 
We throw the idea around that God wants to have a relationship with us. We throw that around. It's eh, kind of cool. So glad that God wants to have a relationship with us. What happens in a relationship? What, I mean, what, are, you, are, you, are any of you in any relationships? I've been in some long-term relationships. Um, I've been a, a son to my mom and dad for 49 years now. And that relationship, it's, it's a fascinating relationship. I remember being a little kid. Um, I remember being a young man. Um, I remember stepping out on my own. I remember begging them for forgiveness, being astonished at their willingness to forgive me. Um, I remember needing advice and needing help. Um, and now I'm at the stage where uh, this is hard, but I'm offering like advice on how to die well, right? So I never, I, I guess I, I don't know if I ever thought I'd be in that place. But hey, you know, Dad, I just probably got what five years left at best. Can I just give you some tips on how you know? I hope I live my last five years. Can I tell you some things like? Maybe it'd be really good to be an amazing husband for your final five years. Wouldn't that be great? Maybe to be a, like a, a you know, I, and so it's, it's, it's interesting having those conversations. I hope my boys have those conversations with me. Actually, they already have had those. And so they're like, Dad, you got, what, 10 years left? Why don't you try being a better dad? You know, so <laughs> again, the danger of being related to me. But, but this, is, this, this really tells us a lot about us because it's so easy for us to look at Jonah and go, oh man, he doesn't get it. It's so interesting, and it was kind of fun for me to be back there and not say anything, and just listening to you, you, and it could have easily been me, but I, I hid, critiquing Jonah for knowing things about God and then not doing them. Like, God has compassion on all the nations, and I can see that in your life with what? God cares about the lost people of Africa. How many of you believe that? And so you do what? Just tell me what you do. Like, tell me how, tell me how that's changed your life. Tell me how that's, tell me how, how that's changed your prayer life. Because you know that about God, correct? You know that he cares for that. He, you know that he cares that his word would be translated into other languages, correct? How many of you know that? So you're doing what about that? Right? Think about it. I mean, that's what happened to me. It was, it was by disconnecting myself from the group, kind of, and hearing you guys critique Jonah. And then, you know, because I, if, I was, I was, if I was with you, it would have been me too. Yeah, get him, get him. Jonah doesn't get it. Jonah doesn't get it. But sometimes when you stand outside of the group, you can hear it different, you know? That's why it's sometimes good to just be quiet and to listen and to realize, wow, I would have said very similar things and I would have failed to recognize that and I don't even think it's bad, by the way, to critique Jonah. So hear me, I'm not saying we shouldn't have critiqued him. I'm saying, but if we are done critiquing him and we never turn the mirror on ourselves, we really have missed the point of the book, have we not? So think about it. For all that Jonah knew about God and he did not respond, what would, what would the book of your life be, being, if we were to write about that? If you were to write your story of not getting it, what would it look like? What do you know about God's plan for the nations that really hasn't molded or shaped your spending habits, your prayer habits, your um, vacation habits? Um, I just came off of a mission trip to Mexico, and I went with a young man named Kevin, 
And uh, I was talking to him, and I said, wow, because I, I, I mean, I don't, again, I don't even, I'm not a big vacation person anyway. Ask my children. They've always resented the fact that dad really didn't care a lot about vacations. But, you know, I, I, I don't, I, 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 I'm a truthful guy. Like, I don't use vacation when I go on mission trips, because for me, that's kind of like work, which it really isn't. And Kevin gave up a week of vacation because he works for the Stillwater Public Schools, and so they don't go, oh, that's just kingdom time. We want you to have that, right? So think about that. He gave up a week's vacation, and I just looked at him, and I said, man, thank you. I, I know you didn't do it for me, but I just want to tell you, like, those kinds of sacrifices mean a lot to me because the truth is, um, like, I don't know if I'll use them, but, I, I, but I, I, I don't have to use my vacation for this week. And, man, I'm humbled by that, and that's amazing. And I just want to thank you for showing me that sacrifice is worth it, right? So t tell me, do you know things about God and you don't live according to what you know about God? Is the answer not yes? And, I'm, and, and it, by the way, the coward's way out is to go, you're right, I'm not going to say anything bad about Jonah. That doesn't get you out of your mess. You know that, right? You were, I, I will tell us all this. We were, we were most likely right about everything that we said about Jonah. And not all. I'm not saying all, but many of those things could have been said about me. And then the other piece that it's very, it's very, very interesting, and, and I want to kind of, this is another kind of piece from this, from the story of Jonah and from a Jewish way of thinking that really helps us understand God is this. How much more, right? Do you remember that in Jonah? How much more should I care for them? How much more? And so the, the idea of that, Jesus actually teaches this quite a bit. Um, if you as a, as a parent know how to give good gifts, how much more does God know how? If, if you know how to work relationships, if you know how to like schmooze, you guys know how to network and schmooze? Any of you know how? I'm not saying you're the best at it, but some of you are probably pretty good at it. You, you know how to do that, right? What's schmooze? Oh, to, no, great question. To schmooze is to flatter people. To sh it's, a, it's, a, it's a slang term. And to schmooze someone is, oh, Nancy, I thought your teaching was incredible today. I just thought, and what I'm really doing is I'm trying to get Nancy to like me, and I'm even wanting Nancy to kind of come along and say, Jim, I thought yours was awesome too. So that whole pretend game, you're not, you're not a very good schmoozer. I'll tell you, Tammy, you're not. And it's a, I mean that... No, but I mean that in a good way. No, no, no. To be a schmoozer is not a good thing, okay? But I, I literally could. Tara, I saw you raise your hand. I, I know how to schmooze. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So I know how, I, yeah. So I know how. I know how to do it. And Jesus says this. The, the, some of his parables are difficult for us to understand because Jesus says, why do you know how to schmooze in worldly ways? And yet you have no idea, weirdly, this, you really, this gets complicated, okay? There's a whole difficult parable, the parable of the shrewd um, ma money manager. Jesus asked this question, why do you know how to schmooze people and you have no ability to schmooze God? Now you might go, well, you can't schmooze God. Sure, that, Jesus isn't saying you can. Jesus says, why do you know how to treat Nancy you have no idea how to treat God. You have no ability to realize, I need to get in God's good standing. 
And I need to work on that relationship. I'm so busy networking with others, and I just kind of assume this is. And Jesus says to them, by the way, interestingly enough, he says this, therefore use worldly wealth to gain friends. That's Jesus' advice. So that when you die, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. <laughs> Why do you think we have such a hard time with that parable? It's much like the parable when the money is given at the end and it's not fair because it so doesn't mesh with us. Jesus says, How, why do you know to put on a winter jacket? And, and, and you can interpret the times, and yet here I am, the Son of God in your presence, and you can't interpret the times. What, what is wrong with you people? How much more? Okay? And so here's what I want us to hear. If Jonah had this limited understanding of who God is and God's plan, and he was not faithful, how much more are those of us who've been given much more? I want you to just think for a moment. Um, I know we envy the prophets because God speaks to them. I want you to think about how much more you have been given greater than Jonah. How much more? I mean, you, you, you saw the defeat of Jonah's homeland. You, you, you know about that. You know about the defeat of the enemies that destroyed Jonah's homeland. And you know how the story continues. You know of who Jesus Christ is. You know about the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. You know about his eternal kingdom. How, how much more have we been required? It's so easy to wonder, like, why doesn't Jonah get it? Okay, that's a great question. Um, because, I don't know, he's a racist, because... Um, he just is a selfish, like just a rude, bad man. I mean, however you want to term it. Okay, I, whatever. Why don't, why don't I get it? Like, why aren't we getting it? And, and oh, go ahead. I mean, I don't know. Luna, Lucia, go ahead. <laughs> yes, because we are like Jonah. And that's why these become the sobering moments of Yes, let's speak the truth about Jonah. Let's hear the truth about Jonah. Let's understand how Jonah missed it. And then let's, let's go in and be less like Jonah and more like Jesus. Okay? Which, by the way, is a great segue. So notice this. So why are we messed up? Why is Jonah messed up? Because Jonah is like Jonah. And, and, the, and one of the primary lessons that we get from the book of Jonah is that Jonah's not supposed to be like Jonah the story of Jonah is that God says to him, I don't want you to be like you. I want you to be like what? Like me. Like, I don't want you to be like you. I want you to be like me. And so the problem is, is that we are too much like Jonah. And so that's where the obstacles get in our way, right? That is why we have to be careful looking at a selective picture of who God is. And we need to look at a more holistic picture of who God is. You know who God is? God is loving and God is caring. And so I've got this friend, and um, I'm not saying they're a believer because they really have no interest in following Jesus, but I'm just there to affirm them. I just want them to feel good about themselves. I just want them to, to you know, I really want to just, uh, in, in biblical terms, as Jeremiah says, to say peace where there is no peace, just so that they can feel peace. And Jeremiah says, woe to the one who says peace where there is no peace. But we take that version of God, this wonderful person, and then we give that to people so that they can feel better about themselves, and we do not tell them that, by the way, God is at war with you, or that you are at war with God, therefore God is at war with you. We say peace to them. We give them 
a one-dimensional view of God instead of the fullness of who God is. We do that, right? Or, by the way, we decide to become on the other side of that, and God is full of wrath, and he is angry, and we talk about his justice, and then we make someone who's trying to deal with the forgiveness of God over them, and we never let them experience the goodness of God, because we cannot believe that anybody could be a Christian and sin like that. And so we hold on to an attribute of God, kind of like Jonah, and we hold it over their head, and the forgiveness that God wants them to experience, the forgiveness that God wants them to feel, we withhold that from them so that they can feel a little bit more of his stinging wrath. See, it could happen both ways, could it not? It really could happen both ways. That's why the biblical response that the prophets had and that we need to have is to speak accurately and truthfully, to offer peace where there is peace, and to offer warning where there is warning, to offer judgment when judgment is impending. That's the job of, 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 of a prophet, is to be the one who will speak like God does, therefore recognizing, and this is an interesting one, I really didn't expect anybody to say this, but God is unchanging. God is unchanging in, in who he is. And, and so one of the most interesting characteristics of God that we need to realize, it's, it's funny because Jonah knew this, and it's what he didn't like, actually. Because remember how Jonah says, isn't this what I told you was going to happen at the very beginning? Is this not what I told you? I told you this. I said, if I go there, you're going to be kind. You are what? Unchanging. The predictability of God. God is like that, which means this, and, and I apologize if you guys have heard me talk about this. I don't remember talking about it in this room, but one of the most beautiful things from the book study I did this past summer um, from A.W. Tozer's uh, the, the Knowledge of the Holy is that in that book, he talks about, and I think this is why it's so interesting to look at things like this. When we say God is this, I have no ability in my mind Okay? I, I, can, I can kind of try to find a personal example or a personal illustration, but because I'm a human, um, I can only do it in a flawed sense. Okay, But I don't know how to do this and this and this simultaneously. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, not God. And so it's almost like when I'm doing this, now I can say, hey, son, listen, like I'm disciplining you, and so I'm going to spank you, son. And the truth is, I love you, and that's why I'm going to do it. But um, I can remember some times where it wasn't just this wonderful love. It was my dad used to say, you'll get to the point, son, kind of warning me, where you're no longer disciplining him, you're venting. Anybody else been there? Right? Because I'm human. And so I kind of move from a loving position to a, to a merciful position and then when I'm not in that, I, I turn into a wrathful position. And I I'm, I'm, I'm really am. I'm transitioning in myself. But are you ready for this? This is the part that I just find fascinating. I need to direct you to the entire chapter. But God never does that. One of the aspects of the unchanging nature of God is this, is, the, is that he is always loving. And he is always merciful. And he is always filled with wrath. And he is always holy. He doesn't shift internally. 
right? So this is, it's, 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 it's the unchanging nature of God. It's the oneness. Even when the idea that God is one, it doesn't just mean you're the only one. It means you are a perfectly integrated oneness of being. So God doesn't shift emotionally. Like we shift emotionally. How many of you have good days and bad days in the same day? Yeah, exactly. So what's very interesting is that God is not like that. And so when we begin to realize, like, wow, we're talking about something, someone that is completely other. And so we can do this, and we can't even get it all. And God looks at us, and God goes, yes, but I don't shift like you shift. I don't change like that. And so what's interesting is to just think about, this is why it's so important to understand um, even the limits of our ability to, to know God. Okay? There are some limits that we have. And as you've heard me say many, many times before, the reason why I love walking up to the limits of my understanding of who God is is because when I reach the end and I know that he is more, it just causes me to worship. When I get to the end of the love piece and I know that God is more loving than this, is God more loving than you? Now, are you ready for this? Is God more loving than you could even possibly conceive of love? Is God more angry than you? Is God more angry, like eternally um, infinitely more than you could ever understand. Yes. And jealous and compassionate and merciful. And so do you see how these things correlate together? And that is kind of like a big idea that we have to hold on to because if not, what we find ourselves on is a ship to Tarshish. It's when our understanding of God and our, I want God to be, when those things become too difficult to hold together, we board ships for Tarshish. And that's when we get into trouble. When all of a sudden we know these things about God and we know them to be true, but I don't like these things about God. And I'm going to be different. And so I would say the, the, the number one thing, which this is the idea that I've never really, I've, I've known, but I've never really articulated like this before, was, you know what I never get when I, when I say God is? You know what word I've never gotten in all the years that I've done this? I've done this. I don't know how many times. I've done this with my kids. I've done this with, uh, in small group studies. I've done this. I've done this probably a hundred times. And there's one thing I've never, been, I've, I've never been said ever, ever, ever. That God is God. Now, again, some of these things get closer to it. I think this one gets a little closer to it. This one definitely is, is a part of that whole piece. But I never, you know who God is? Like, he's God. And we never think about that. Um, I'm, a, I'm a prophet, and so I'm here, and, and God and I are going to negotiate this. Um, I'm not going to do what he says. That, that means that you don't, I don't know how well you believe God is God if you say, I'm not going to do it. Like something's broken in that scenario. <laughs> how can you say God is God and I'm not God and then not do what he says? Something's broken in that. 
I love the definition of sin, that one of the greatest definitions of sin is us assuming to be God. Us assuming that we know more than God or we know better than God. And I hear, I hear people say this, and I sense it in myself. I've never articulated it, but when I sin, it's God, like I know what you've said and I know what you want. I'm going to do something other than that. Like I know where you want me to go and I know what you want me to do and I know what you're going to do and so I'm getting on a ship for Tarshish. And the hardest thing for a people, for an individual, for a nation to really come to grips with is as long as we can keep it in this category, it's somewhat controllable. It's this one that really makes us unsettled that God is God. So that when he says things like to a mother who's about to have twins um, and the younger one will be the leader, uh, the older will serve the younger, for I am Yahweh. Well, wait a second. That's not the way I want it to be. I know, but I am Yahweh. And when God says, of all the trees in the garden you shall eat, but this one tree you shall not eat, for I am Yahweh. And now I want you to go out into all the world and be fruitful and multiply, and, and, and for I am Yahweh. And they said, no, we're going to stay right here and we're going to build a tower. And just think about it. All throughout the Bible, this is how it is. Samuel the prophet walks in. I'm here to anoint the next king of Israel. Um, it, it must be you. No, it must be you. No, it must be you. No, it's none of you? Well, that doesn't make any sense. And God comes in and says, yeah, there's somebody else. He's coming. I, I've chosen someone. And he, what does he say to Samuel? You don't know how to choose people. That's your problem. You look at the outward appearance. But I don't look at the outward appearance. I look at the heart, for I am Yahweh. Like I'm God. Like, I look at things different. I act different. And then, by the way, the invitation is constantly, so will you be like me? Be holy, for I am holy. And he gives a list of 613 commandments. And the overarching idea is that I am holy, and I want you to be holy, and so do these. And what did the people say? No. Like, I don't, I don't know if I believe this. I don't know if I believe that you're God. So Jonah comes from a long line of people who just cannot get over the fact that they are not God. I come from a long line of people that just have a really hard time ever getting, getting over the fact that I am not God. And so I'm going to pursue my hopes, my dreams. I'm going to pursue my kingdom. And it's called, you've heard me talk about it, it's called Jimdom. It's a wonderful place. Um, it's, a, it's, it's like this incredible house that I've been building on sand, uh, totally believing that storms will never come, and that I will never face any kind of judgment. And so it's easy to build, and it's very easy to manage, and it's incredibly temporary. And why? Because in the end, this is the version I like of God, <laughs> and I fail to deal with other ones that I should want to deal with, because in the end, God is still a character of him instead of him. See, that's the problem with the statement. When we, mis when we misapply it, God is love. 
By the way, that's a biblical statement found in 1 John 4. God is love. That's true. But God is a whole lot more than that. And when we don't get that and when we miss this, we get into trouble. So Habakkuk, the, 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 the prophet, is told, and this nation, the Babylonians, will come down and destroy your people. And his response was, no, that's not the way it should be. And God says, remember, I am God, you are Habakkuk. Don't ever get that mixed up. And Habakkuk ends in Habakkuk 3 saying, I will wait for you. Like that's kind of it. The I will wait for you mentality. How long, O Lord, do I preach this message in Isaiah? And what does he say? Until the cities all lie in ruin. Until there is this tiny little tree that's growing up from a stump that has been completely torn down. Meaning when the destruction that you prophesy actually... Isaiah is going to die before it ever really happens. Because why? Because I am Yahweh. Now, let's, I, I want to I conclude by bringing it into the New Testament. See, this idea carries on into the New Testament, and it's a very strong, strong, strong idea. So you know these parables, and I think they fit really well to the story of Jonah. You know the parable of a man who has a tremendous debt before a king. And this king forgives this debt, Okay, And then that man who has been forgiven the debt by the king, a greater debt than he could ever pay, turns around to someone else and says, you owe me. And when the man cannot repay, he throws him into prison. And the story is what? And when the king finds out what this servant here did to these other servants, because all of these people are not kings. These are servants. When the king finds out that this servant does this to this servant after the king has done this, what does the king do? The king will take him and he will throw him in prison until he has paid back everything he owes, which means what? He's never getting out. See, that's what Jesus teaches, which is the story of Jonah. Like, Jonah, can I not, I mean, is that not it? Can I not do what I want to do here? Do I not have the prerogative to do what I want to do to love these people? Like, you think that you understand what I'm supposed to do the, to the Ninevites? After all that I have given the people of Israel, after all that they have rebelled against me, after all of the sins of that, and I continue to wait patiently, now you're going to stand here in front of me and tell me that I, Yahweh God, cannot show favor to these people. Am I hearing you right, Jonah? Now, why is it that you and I can just not understand, maybe just I, I cannot understand how Jonah doesn't get that. It just sounds like, Jonah, how could you think that? And then Jesus says to me, really, you want to do this again? After all that I've done for you? After all that I've given for you? And your response to that is to hold on to it? Your response to that is to build gymdom? Like, seriously? That's your response to who I am and to what I've done. I gave my life for you so that you could have gymdom. Seriously. So do you see how this correlates? This is constantly being played out in the Bible. And those people who understand it are those people who have a deep appreciation and understanding 
that God is so much more than these attributes? Are you ready for this? He is more than the collection of the attributes. He's this. And I really believe that my, my biggest problem, I believe that our biggest problem, humanity's biggest problem, is failing to understand and appreciate the difference between being human, made in the image of God, and being God. If we could ever fully, I mean, I'm not even saying understand that. If we could ever even truly appreciate, because we could never fully understand that, but to truly appreciate that, I think, keeps us from getting on a ship and going to Tarshish. It keeps us from pouting about a plant that got eaten. It keeps us from, from somehow believing that our version of justice or our version of forgiveness or our version of holiness is the only possible version that could exist. It keeps us humble, does it not? And what does God do to the proud? And what does God do to the humble? See how that kind of fits into this? So I want to conclude in Luke 17. It's one of my favorite passages. Um, in Luke 17, in 1 through 10, and I could go in a couple of different places, but I, I wanted to stay on the forgiveness theme and, and, and the, the, just the depths of God's forgiveness uh, as kind of like obviously a Jonah theme, right? So the Jonah theme is that God chooses to forgive the Ninevites, which, by the way, um, please don't read. Love you guys. I wish they loved their jobs more. Okay. Uh, who's in charge? That's, this, that's what I keep thinking. So it's interesting how, how in Luke 17, we get a really good picture of this. And th this, is, this was, again, one of my father's favorite texts to remind me of, except he didn't really help me understand fully the context of it. So really, remember what we talked about? How God wanted Jonah to be like him? And Jesus wants us to be like him, how, how, how similar those things are. So I want you to be like me. I want you to truly be like me. That's why it's not a crazy thing. We, we need to talk more like that. Can we be like God? And the answer is yes. Jesus, or Paul the apostle, says that. Be imitators of God, therefore. What's the context? Does anybody know in Ephesians? Forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. So that's the big picture of this. And so I want to just read these 10 verses rather quickly because I, I don't have time to exegete them. But notice how we're going to end at the very end with God and us. The greatness of God and the, um, I don't know, the smallness of us. Okay? Luke 17, 1 through 10. It's very interesting 
The, and, and the NIV, you, you may not have it in front of you, the NIV actually has like temptation, sin, and duty or something like that. They have a weird... Sin, faith, and duty. Okay, so that's kind of how they describe it, which is their way of saying, we don't know how these three things fit together. That's kind of what they could put. Unconnected ideas that we want to just, and that's, so when I read that with those commas, I thought, oh, that's kind of weird. Um, the, N, the ESV just chops it up into three sections, so they really don't do anything better. I think it's one section. I think one through 10 is one idea, not many ideas. It's one idea. And you'll see how it all fits together. And I want you to have it kind of in the back of your mind, the story of Jonah. And he said to his disciple, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It'd be better for him that a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than he would ever cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. Okay, watch your life closely. Jesus says that a lot. Then he goes on, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, that's kind of a very interesting statement. If he repents, forgive him. That's what I want to preach on sometimes, but I don't have the time now. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Seven times in a day. Doesn't say you begin to doubt whether or not he's sincere. It says, bigger picture, I want you to forgive him. You ever, sinned, you ever sinned against God more than once in a day? Just checking. Now, this isn't a new idea. Okay? Then the disciples say to him, Lord, increase our faith. Like, I get why people are kind of going, um, I, I don't know how to do that. I don't know, how, how do you forgive someone that many times? And you have a hard time forgiving someone who just sins against you and then sins against you and then sins against you and sins against you and sins against you and then sins against you and then sins against you. Anybody else have a hard time with that? So the idea of increasing our faith contextually is not, because faith is what? Faith is to put one's trust in God. That's what it is. Increase our faith is not, Make my worship, when I'm, when, I'm, when I'm singing songs to God, make my heart happier. That's not increase our faith. It's, I want you to increase my ability to trust God at his word. To live in light of the truth about who God is. Make me more like Jesus is what it means to increase your faith. Okay? It is to grow in your understanding of and obedience to Jesus. And so, and by the way, I can preach this to myself as well, but I've had people who come in and say, I'm having a hard time forgiving. And I look at them and I'm going, I'm sure you do. I mean, it's a hard thing to do. And then I say nowadays, maybe you can't. Like, maybe you're not spiritually mature enough to know how to forgive. What? Yeah, because it sounds like you're still wanting to hold on to something. It sounds like you're wanting a pound of flesh and you can't have a pound of flesh and forgive simultaneously. No, you give the pound of flesh, actually, when you forgive. God did not forgive us by making us pay for our sins. God forgave us through Jesus Christ in which he bore our sins. And so I had to look at this young lady and tell her, I do not know if you have it in you to forgive the one who I know what she did and I know that she wronged you. I don't think you have it in you to do this. She was offended by that. 
And by the way, I said, hey, and by the, you proving me wrong would just be the coolest thing in the world. But I don't, I mean, I don't know. It's going to be tough. How, how do you do that? When Jesus says, I want you to forgive like I forgive, 70 times 7, your response should be, increase my faith. You see how it's, 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 an, it's an immediate response. I can't do that. God, increase my faith. And Jesus says, that's not your problem. The problem isn't that you don't, quote unquote, have enough faith. The problem is you're not wanting to be obedient. Notice what he says here. If you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to a mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. What's he saying there? The question's not not having the faith. The question is not acting upon the faith. You have the faith. You just need a little bit of it. You can accomplish it. So I don't want to hear about it. It's very interesting. People go, wow, so they didn't even have that? No, Jesus is saying, you do have that. Now go do that. You do have that faith. Now go do that. I remember watching amazing people do amazing. Everybody thinks they're amazing things. They're amazing people. And, when I, and I, I'm the same way, right? I'm sitting there and I'm absolutely amazed at these people and all that they've done. And then I just realized they haven't done anything but just believed in Jesus. When I heard about a friend of mine who, after 9-11, decided, I'm going to move to Kabul, Afghanistan, I just thought that was the craziest thing in the world. And I realized all that, all that Laurie had <laughs> was a belief in Jesus. And then she just went and did it. That's kind of what Jesus is meaning when he says this. A little bit of faith can do this. The response isn't for us. We usually teach it this way. Wow, we don't even have that. No, we do have that. Now go do that. Right? It's a, it's a matter of obedience. So what does he say as it continues on? And this is why I wish this was pulled up to the previous section. Listen, you can just obey. It'll obey you. Obey me. And then he says in verse 7, which is the answer to Jonah. It is the answer to how to forgive. It is the answer how to be like Jesus. Will any of you, if you have a servant plowing or keeping sheep, say to him when he's come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table. So imagine you're the boss and you say to your servant, oh, you've been working so hard today. Come in here and sit down at the table. Will he rather not, will he rather, uh, will he not rather say, I always have to get used to where they put the negatives in the, in the ESV. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly? And serve me while I eat and drink. And then afterward, you can eat and drink. Isn't that what happens? And the answer is what? Yes. That's what happens to servants and masters. Servants work really, really hard. And after working really, really hard, they come in after a long day, and what do they do? They, they serve their master. They get dressed properly, and they continue to serve. Why? Because it's who they are. And then he says in verse 9, does he thank the servant? By the way, not, Jesus is not teaching masters should be unthankful. But he's pointing to something. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Answer, no. It's the servant's job. And so then Jesus says, so you also, when you have done all that you are commanded, should say, we are unworthy servants, and we have only done what was our duty. How do I go to Nineveh, preach a message 
and then sit back as God does what God wants to do when I don't agree with him. How do you do that? You want to know how you do it? When you remember that you're a servant. When you remember the amazing difference, distance, between you and the one who asked you to do it. And when you understand that, when you un and I think this is part of the problem, and I know that it's complicated because I want my children to think more of themselves. I want my children to, to, to not think that they're just worms and that they're just terrible losers, and so I want to build them up. Okay, I want to build them up. I want them to have confidence. I want them to be strong. I want them to know that they're beautiful, and I want them to know that they're smart. Okay? Really? Is that what I want my children to be? Have you met my children? Ted, have you met my children? Is there a problem that they're um, not confident enough in themselves, uh, that, they, that they kind of look at themselves and they have... They need more confidence. They need more kind of reassurance in terms of who they are. They're not lacking in confidence. So do they need maybe humility? And I'll tell you, and she will be more than glad that I do this. She will not disagree with me. What Genevieve needs is not more confidence. It's more humility. You know that? Genevieve knows that. You know that, don't you? She needs more humility, not less. Genevieve needs to be reminded that she's a servant, an unworthy servant. That's who you are, Genevieve. Do you know that? And then you become the greatest of all. Isn't that true? Which, by the way, is what Jesus says. Those of you that go to the end of the line, get the front of the line. Those of you that get that you're last, you become first. It is the great cosmic reversal, is it not? Because why? Because only those who truly understand. Luke 17.10. Avoid getting on a ship and going to Tarshish. They avoid the embarrassment of standing on a hill and pouting like a child. They avoid the, embarrass and the embarrassment of finding out that they had built a, 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 a home on sand that was completely destroyed. And ultimately, they, they, they fail the embarrassment of standing before God and saying, and, and hearing, away from me. Like, away from me. And over what? Over the fact that you could not accept that I truly was God, and you so are not. And that only comes through humility. Thoughts? Let me pray. God, I thank you for Jonah's story, and um, I love it because if I didn't read it first, I could so be it. <laughs> um, I struggle with allowing you to be, and even that sentence makes no sense. How do I allow or not allow you to do anything, even in my own life? It is only by your permission. Nothing happens without you knowing and then fully in control, even though I don't understand exactly how all of that works. God, you are loving and merciful and holy and righteous and full of wrath. God, you are all of those things and more. Truly, you alone are God.
And I pray that as your people, we would remember and celebrate that truth. And that it would give us um, a kind of strength to know what it means to fear the Lord, to fear you. It's the beginning of wisdom. And so, God, I pray um, that we would have a deeper and better, not just understanding, but appreciation for who you are, for how much you love us, for what you have done for us, and for what you are now doing through us. It's in Jesus' name we humbly pray. Amen.